It's great to be here with you this morning. I had a little minor uh, issue with my foot this past week, and so the doctor asked if I'd stay off it, and so I'm trying to behave myself. Me sitting is not an indication of the length of the message, and so I just want to let you know that. Uh, I don't need to re- save up my energy, but, uh, but anyway, I'm trying to be good, which is a difficult thing if you know me, uh, and so um, that's why I'm sitting, and uh, anyway, uh, that's why. Uh, we are excited to be here with you, uh, whether you're here on our Canandaigua campus, online campus, Hopewell campus, we are in a series called Kingdom Living Volume 1, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we started uh, with really looking at the Sermon on the Mount in context, as well as, really, how do we receive the teaching of Jesus? Not necessarily specifically the Sermon on the Mount, but the teaching of Jesus in general. And we looked at the fact that we come to the teaching, we come to God's Word, and we ask ourselves, are we willing? Are we willing to do what He's asking us to do, to journey with Him, to, to follow His teachings? So we want to come with a mindset that says, I'm here to learn. And not just to learn information, but to learn how to walk with Jesus. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. In fact, we're going to jump right in uh, with the Beatitudes. And Jesus jumps right in with the Beatitudes. Uh, The Beatitudes. Beatitudes simply means blessedness. And and the Beatitudes are are really set out the character of a believer. And and for me, the idea of the Beatitudes really uh, helps me remember but they're not just things we do. They are things we do, but they're not just things we do. How many of you out there are list people like me? You put your list together, you, you feel accomplished when you can check things off. That's good. It's good to get things done. But sometimes us doers can find ourselves in a trapping of forgetting that the work that we do in the Lord starts with our being. Starts with him working on our hearts. Starts with our relationship with him. And so as we go through uh, the eight Beatitudes, we want to be very careful that we're not just putting a to-do list together, but a- actually asking the Lord, help us partner with you so your spirit will work in us, and then do your work through us. And so that's the key to the Beatitudes. There's eight of them. Now, many times people will break them up. You know, do eight weeks, right? We'll look at each beatitude. And, there, and there's, there's definitely some positive reasons to do something like that. But Jesus, when he spoke them, he didn't mean for them to be eight categories of disciples. He meant for these eight characteristics to be formed in a disciple, in us. And so we're going to look at them together. And so we're, we're going to go through them pretty fast. So listen fast, please. And, and we'll, we'll get at this thing. What is the blessedness spoken of in the Beatitudes? What is the blessedness spoken of in the Beatitudes? Well, those believers who have the character mentioned in the Beatitudes possess the kingdom of heaven and they will inherit the earth. We'll see that over and over again in each of these Beatitudes. I like how John Stott notes this about these eight characteristics, these eight qualities. He writes, the eight qualities Christ mentions constitutes the responsibility and the eight blessings, the privileges of being a citizen in God's kingdom. And so what we're going to discover is that the first four Beatitudes really deal with our relationship with God, and the second four Beatitudes are relationship with others. That's how Jesus breaks it down for us. So let's jump right into the Beatitudes. Jesus begins his sermon. Think about it. No introduction. They sit, and this is how he starts. Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before them, who were before you. And, And so what Jesus does in the Beatitudes, he really sets the foundation for the rest of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. These qualities are the foundation of everything else that we're going to be looking at. And remember, the first four deals with what our relationship with God. And so let's just jump into the first one, the first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, that's an interesting phrase. And for us to understand what Jesus is talking about, we needed to understand how the original hearers of his words understood the word poor. And for us to do that, we would need to spend a lot of time looking in the Old Testament and seeing how the word poor broadened definition. When we look at the word poor in the Old Testament, originally it just literally meant material needs, that there were individuals who had these material needs that weren't being met, and certainly poor still means that today. But as we look at the unpacking of that word in the Old Testament, especially by the time of Jesus, when he put poor and spirit together, his hearers understood what he meant. And he was talking about those who, who had a spiritual deficiency in their life. They had spiritual needs that they, they needed to understand and identify. They needed a, to have a humble dependence on God. The Psalms, psalmist proclaims this in Psalm 34, 6. He writes, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. It's not talking about necessarily material needs there. It's talking about spiritual needs. And for us, really, to to be in a right relationship with God, it really begins by understanding that all of us are poor in spirit. Every single one of us, every person on planet Earth is poor in spirit. We have spiritual needs. And so the poor in spirit are those who confess their need for God. Not to God, but for God. God, I need you. And they will inherit the kingdom of God. The condition of receiving the kingdom of God is this acknowledgement of the spiritual poverty in our life. And many of us can understand before we came to Christ, we we probably didn't acknowledge that. We acted like we had it all together. We acted like we could take care of ourselves and we were independent and all these things. And and yet the scripture is so clear. And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we acknowledge the fact, no, 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 we need God. We need God. I like the 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon's word on this particular beatitude. He writes, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. The way to rise in the kingdom. You know, Scripture's interesting. Jesus says, what the last shall be first, right? Those who are humbled, or prideful will be humbled. And so we, we see these things, and we, we understand what, what Spurgeon's saying, that if you want to rise in the kingdom, we have to sink in ourselves and, and admit our dependency on God. On to the second beatitude. I said we're going to run right through these things. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In this beatitude, Christ isn't describing, for instance, the loss of someone or the loss of something. One can be spiritually poor and acknowledge it, but one must also grieve and mourn over it. 
Confession is one thing, but contrition is quite another. And, and if we were to be honest, most of us can understand confession, but, but contrition is sometimes hard to wrap our mind around. What is that? Contrition is, is really a, a genuine sorrow for sin based on a pure love for God. And, and, and those who mourn over sin will be blessed with comfort. I, many years ago, I was in my early 20s, I was with a group of friends, and one of the individuals in the group, she said, I'm glad I didn't come to Jesus until I was later because I was able to do the things I did. <laughs> now understand this, I was in my early 20s, okay? So like, there's a switch that many of you were born with that you don't say things you think about right away, you think before you speak. I still don't have that switch, by the way, just over time. <laughs> I've just learned the discipline of holding my tongue just a little bit so the spirit can, can shut my mouth. Uh, so I just blurted out. I said, that's one of the worst things I've ever heard. <laughs> she said, what? I mean, it totally killed the moment. I said, am I hearing you right? You're glad you did the things you did now that you know they're sin because you did them before you knew they were sin. And now that you're in the kingdom, you're glad you enjoyed the things before the kingdom and in the kingdom, you're not really sorry for them, but glad you're in the kingdom. And she yeah, looked at me like, you are right now. Like, I can't believe you said that. And I said, are you a Christian? I, I said that. Okay, okay. I'm just being honest. We're in church. I was just curious. I thought, you know, what's going on here? Because, listen, I don't know where you're at with God. Maybe you're just here and you're, you're online, even Hopewell Campus. You're investigating the things of Christ. Let me just be really clear on what the scripture teaches us and what I've experienced in my own life. Sin will ruin you. Like it promises you happiness, but it's fleeting. It takes more from you than it ever offers you. Come on, church. It, it breaks God's heart. It, it'll, it'll devastate your life. It'll hurt the people around you. And so it's one thing to, to be poor in spirit and say, no, no, I'm dependent on God. I need God. It's another thing to say sin is horrible. It's horrible. I hate sin. God hates sin. He loves people, but he hates sin. He hates sin so much that legally, in, in, in kingdom principles, Jesus died for our sins. His own son gave his life. How, how bad is sin? It cost the life of God on a cross for us to be right with him. Should be something we mourn. Have you ever been in a situation where someone said they were sorry, but when they said they were sorry with something like this, I'm sorry. What they're really saying is, can we just move on? Right? Can we just move on? How many of you like it when someone apologizes like that? Or, I'm sorry, but. Should have stopped with I'm sorry. Right? There's a lesson for all of you out there, right? If you're saying you're sorry, just start with I'm, stop with I'm sorry. There should be no excuse if you're sorry. Come on now. Come on, we want to go to lunch, don't we? Let's get into this thing. And, and, and so it's, I'm sorry, I hurt you. I'm sorry, I was wrong. And, and, and I love this verse in 1 John 1, 9. It's such a great promise. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a great exchange that takes place. We, we mourn over our sin, we bring it to God. And what does he do? He comforts us. That's a great exchange, isn't it? I'm sorry for my sin, Lord. I, I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to cleanse. I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to comfort you. That's what God does. Look at the third beatitude, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Meek, this Greek adjective, is, is, is a word that's often translated gentle or humble or, or considerate, courteous. It's to exercise some type of self-control. Dr. Uh, Lloyd uh, Jones, he comes, sums up meekness this way for us in his writings. He says, meekness is essentially a, a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who's truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and others can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. You know, there's some people, but you leave their presence and you realize how great they are because they've told you over and over again. And there's other people, when you leave their presence, you feel as if you're a great person. They've poured into you. They've invested in you. They show love for you. I had the opportunity several years ago, um, my mentor, Bill Jones, asked me if I wanted to meet his mentor, Robertson McQuilkin, and Bill Jones is a godly man, and his mentor, Robertson McQuilkin, some of you may know the name, he uh, was a famous missionary, also an uh, amazing uh, worker in Christian education. He was a, a former president at the school I was attending at the time, Columbia International University, where I was doing my graduate studies, and uh, to meet him was an amazing thing. Uh, he, while he was president at Columbia International University, his wife came down with an extremely early onset of Alzheimer's. And he resigned as president. And the campus said to him, please don't resign. Imagine this. The campus said to him, stay as president, and you can do whatever you can do and don't do whatever you don't want to do. If you can't do any work as president, it's okay, but we want to continue to pay you, stay in the president's mansion, and take care of your wife. And he said, I can't do that. He said, when I got married, the day I got married, I made a commitment. He said, to love and cherish this woman till death do us part. And he said, I, I'm going to do that. And he said, I can't do that with the burden of this title of presidency on me. And so he resigned from the campus. In fact, uh, I saw a recording of him speaking to the entire campus uh, as he was resigning. And he said, don't feel sorry for me. This is my privilege. Like, this is what I signed up for. How many of you are humbled by that? This is the man I got to meet. And when I went in, two things overwhelmed me. First of all, this was a man of God. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody and you just feel God? <laughs> and he was one of those individuals. The other thing that just sort of blew my mind was how honored he made me feel <laughs> that he was meeting me. And I'm sitting here going, you got to be kidding me. You know, who am I that he's let me in his house? And he's like, thank you for taking the time to come out. I've, I've heard some great things about you from, from Bill, and I've been looking for I'm thinking, how do you even know me? Who am I that you would? What a meek man. What a gentle man. What a strong man. The meek are those who humbly submit themselves to God and others, and they'll inherit the earth. So different than the world's standards. So different than worldly culture is this Christian culture Jesus introduces us to. Then the fourth beatitude, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. John Stott rightly observes, he says, the spiritual hungering and thirsting for righteousness are a characteristic of all of God's peoples whose supreme ambition is not material but spiritual. Catch that. It's not material but spiritual. Believers are not like those of the world who merely seek stuff. And I just, that's so important. Now, by the way, I don't think stuff is bad. I like stuff. Do you like stuff? I like my truck. 
I really do. I really do. I went to a McDonald's the other day. Yes, I was getting a Big Mac. I went to McDonald's the other day, and, and the guy said, I like your truck. I said, well, thank you. I like my truck, too. I said, I got a good deal on it. We were talking about my truck, and then finally people behind me were like, <laughs> what's going on, right? Anyway, so, so we moved on. I do. It, it's not a truck like some of you. How many of you have, have a work truck? Now, mine's not a work truck. When it gets a scratch on, I'm really upset. Like, I don't want it scratched. Like, I, when I do things work-related with it, I am so careful, it's ridiculous. You would think it was a Maserati. I mean, I, I just like the truck. But I don't live for that truck. I had a life before the truck. I'll have a life after the truck. You follow me? It's not about stuff. It's not about stuff. I enjoy stuff. It's not about stuff. As a matter of fact, it's about God's kingdom. Jesus, later in Matthew 6, in his sermon, he makes it really clear. He says, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about our needs. Now, by the way, I don't need a truck. And sometimes in America, we, we really misunderstand needs and wants, don't we? But he'll meet our needs. And really, when everything's said and done, all I really need is him. He said, well, Craig, you need food. No, I like food, and I do need food in order to exist on this planet, but I don't need food for eternity. I need him. After him, everything else is whatever. Come on now, church. And so seeking him first. Righteousness in the Bible has at least three aspects. There's a legal aspect, a legal righteousness, that's justification, that's salvation. But the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Well, now, why is that? Because the wage of sin is death, and we all deserve death. God died in our stead. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price. And so legal righteousness is the fact that Jesus has wrapped us in his righteousness when we receive him as Lord and Savior. It ties into moral righteousness. Moral righteousness is character and conduct. Every day I pray, Lord, thank you for wrapping me in, in the righteousness of Christ. What's that mean? But as a believer, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Like, there's days where I know I fall way short of Jesus. Okay, I know you don't. Look at the way you're looking at me. I know you're all perfect. But there's his days, right? But I realize when God sees me, and he receives me because of what Christ has done, not because of what I am doing. But in that, it's not an excuse not to be prayerful and say, but God, would you make me more like Jesus today? Would you help me walk more like Jesus today? Think more like Jesus today. Love more like Jesus today. That's moral righteousness. Then there's social righteousness. As, as we learn from the law and the prophets, it's concerned with seeking humanity's liberation from oppression together with the promotion of civil rights and, and responsible care for the planet and justice in law courts and integrity in business dealings and honor in home and family affairs. What are we talking about here? That when we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not a passive prayer, it's an active prayer. That we stand up for the oppressed, but we stand next to the people who are hurting. That we, we not only cry out for justice, when we can exhibit justice, we do. We care for our planet. And by the way, we care for our planet because God has entrusted us with it. Now, by the way, we care for our planet, not in fear for the planet. And I just want to be very careful here. I know how the world's going to end. It tells me. Come on, church. Look, I know how the world's going to end. You want to know how? Read Revelation. It tells you. I don't know all the specifics, but I know enough to know that when it happens, God's going to take care of me. So I'm not fearful of the end of the world. Because the end of the world isn't the end of me. And if you're in Christ, it's not the end of you. But that doesn't mean I, I don't want the world to be as good as it can be. If I take a hike with the kids when they were little and we saw trash, we picked it up. Why? Because it's God's planet. 
You know, it, it, it leaves something better than you found it, right? But I don't, I'm not doing it out of fear because I know how it ends. If you want how it ends, it's right here. You don't have to live in fear. There is no fear in Christ Jesus. There, there's, there's, there's confidence in him and what he's leading us to. But there's also this understanding that we have responsibility to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That when we look at this term race, there's only one race. There's only one race under the kingdom of God. He made one people. We may, we may look different, we may have different cultures, but when everything's said and done, we're all in equal standing before the cross. And so we should treat each other that way. And we should call our culture to the same thing. Come on, church. Come on, church. So there's legal righteousness, there's moral righteousness, there's social righteousness. And the believer receives this legal righteousness in Christ and is empowered to pursue moral righteousness by the Spirit and is called to fight for social righteousness. Christ presents this fourth characteristic to his followers, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who long for God's will and God's ways, and they will be filled. We need to understand that our hunger will never fully be satisfied this side of heaven, but it's being fulfilled. It's it's welling up within us as a foretaste of what we're going to have when we go to paradise. So let's look quickly at a summary of the first four. The first four Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progression, if you will, To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our complete spiritual bankruptcy before God. We are to mourn over our sin, coming to God for forgiveness. We are to be meek, humble, and gentle towards God and others. Then we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness. After all, think about it. What use is it of confessing and contrition of our sin, acknowledging the truth about ourselves to God and others, if it does not lead us to want God's will? and desire to walk in his ways while we call others to do the same. There's a culture change within us. Well, on to the next four. Remember, the first four deal with our relationship with God, although they flood over into our relationship with others. But the last four really deal with our relationship with others. The fifth beatitude, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is compassion for people in need. Our God is a God of mercy, so it shouldn't surprise us that he calls us to be a people of mercy. Often the world prefers to insulate themselves from the pain of others. But the kingdom, kingdom living, calls us to put mercy in action. As Jesus left the splendor of heaven to come to earth, we are to be willing to allow God to lead us into others' pain. Not to absorb their pain, but to be ambassadors of mercy into what they're wrestling with. The merciful are those who show compassion for those in need, and they receive the blessing of mercy themselves. We can't receive God's mercy and and, and forgiveness unless we repent, and we, we can't rightly claim to have repented of our sins if we're unmerciful towards others. And this is a great reminder for me. Have you ever had somebody who does something less than wise? There's a word for that. It's called stupid. Have you ever had somebody do something stupid to you? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever done something less than wise? Remember the word for that? Stupid. Have you ever done anything stupid? Oftentimes, when someone has done something stupid, okay, and if you don't like that word, it's okay. You know, if someone's done something stupid, and all of a sudden, you're, I know for me, something I'm like, man, it's just, it's just ugh, you know? I remember this. I remember this. God loves me how I am, and I can do stupid things sometimes. Come on. Don't say it for you. Say it for the person next to you. Amen. All right? Yeah, I know you're not there, but the person next to you is, right? 
But think about that, right? Think about that. And if God can love me and I have his love, and God, give me your love for them. May they see your mercy in me. It's not easy. I, I need God to help me do that, but isn't that the whole point? People should see something different in us because of God, not because of us, because of who we are in him. The sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here Christ makes reference really to our, our sincerity and our relationship with others. Such a person is really free from falsehood. The, the pure of, in heart are those who walk in integrity before God and others, and they will see God. Only the pure in heart will see God because they're honest, and they're honestly reflecting God. They're, they're taking the mask off. You ever put that mask on? I want people to see confidence. I want people to, you know, I'm not self-confident. I'm God-confident. And there's something different about that. See, self-confident means if you come after me, then it's me and you, right? And, and I believe that I can just overpower whatever. God-confidence is if you come after me, it's not my, my father will take care of it. And my father will win. You follow what I'm saying? Come on now. Self-confidence is, is, is just in me. God-confidence is in who he's made me and who I am in him. And trusting that he's good and will take care of me. One, one's a mask, the other's fact. And that's how you see God, because he's working, and you're trusting, and it influences the relationships around us. Seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The movement from purity of heart to peacemaking is a natural one, because one of the most frequent causes of conflict is a lack of integrity. Isn't that true? While openness and sincerity are essential elements in genuine reconciliation. Believers are called to pursue peace. 1 Peter 3, 10 to 11. For whoever, uh, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. How many of you desire to love life and see good days? Anyone who doesn't, come up afterwards, we'll help you. Okay? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Peacemaking is a work of God in and through the life of a believer. And God is the author of peace and reconciliation. Jesus is the example of it. He didn't just say he loved us. He showed us on the cross, making peace with God when we receive him as Lord and Savior. So the peacemaker are those who make peace with others, and they will be called sons of God. Now remember, however, Paul's call in Romans, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. As long as it depends on you. Peace and appeasement are not synonymous. They're not the same thing. And sometimes people won't want peace because peace has to be founded on truth. Appeasement's often founded on falsehood. And so I'm still going to stand on the truth. I'm not going to shy away from the truth. But as long as it's in my power, I'm going to make peace, understanding that I can be at peace even if those around, you, around me will not make peace with me. My peace comes from God, not you. He gets to determine my peace quotient, not those around me. Amen, church? That's the work of God. And then the eighth and last beatitude, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. This is the one that all of you are memorizing and claim. Blessed are those who are persecuted, right? Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The truth is that some people ref will refuse to live at peace with believers. Not all attempts at peace will be successful. There will be those who, who choose to persecute you simply because you are a believer. 
In fact, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The world's and God's. And sometimes we have brothers and sisters, especially in parts of the world, who are simply persecuted because they're followers of Jesus. And their lifestyles have made them found guilty of being a follower of Jesus. And so those who are persecuted for righteousness or those who suffer for being a Christian, they're they're promised the kingdom of heaven and encouraged to rejoice. Not rejoice in the persecution, that would be sick and wrong. But rejoice because they're being persecuted because they've been found guilty of being a follower of Jesus. I often wonder, you know, if I was taken before a court, would I be found guilty of being a Christ follower? I hope so. Hope there's enough evidence. Hope there's enough evidence. And when we're persecuted for the name of Christ, by the way, not persecuted because we've done, remember the S word, stupid things? But because we're followers of Jesus, we rejoice in the evidence there. Rejoice in being found in Christ. That's what the rejoicing is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was no, uh, no stranger to persecution, this is what he wrote. He says, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And in it, therefore, not all suffering that Christians should be called upon is, is to suffer, but in fact, it is joy and to be, ta- be a token of grace. In other words, it's not the suffering we celebrate in it, it's Christ. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, anyone who wishes to live a godly life will be persecuted. How many of you want to live a godly life? Persecution is part of that. It rubs the world wrong. And again, believers don't rejoice in being persecuted. They, they rejoice in being found worthy of being identified with Jesus. Summary of the last four. The genuine follower of Christ lives in community with others. They, they walk with God without withdrawing from society. They're not insulated from the world's pain. Rather, they show mercy to those battered by sin in life. They're sincere in word and deed, living in integrity towards God and others. They live at peace with God and are peacemakers. For all of this, at times they're persecuted. These are those who are blessed, who have the approval of God and rest rest in his comfort, power, and joy. Those who have the character mentioned in the Beatitudes possess the kingdom of heaven, they inherit the earth, and it's a topsy-turvy culture that Jesus presents us with, where, where, the, where God exalts the humble and humbles the proud, where the last will be first and the first will be last, where he honors the, the, the servant and he sends those who are overlords home empty-handed. That's who God is. That's what his culture is all about. God desires to, the meek to be his heirs. And the culture of the world and that of Christ stand in direct opposition to one another. But all of heaven applauds. All of heaven applauds those who receive Christ as Savior and Lord and are living in Christ, who are his people. And God says to us, who are his, and you are blessed. You are blessed. Here are the characteristics of a a believer. This is what it means to have Christian character. We're not going to be perfect this side of heaven but it's not an excuse not to be perfected. You've heard me say this many times. I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm a work in progress. And we're all messy. And if you don't think you're messy, you're probably messier than most. And yet God meets us where we're at and he says, don't expect to stay there. Let me take you further. Let me take you further than you ever thought you could go. 
I'll have people come to my office over the years and they'll say, you know, how can I have a better marriage? You know, what book can I read? Start with this one. I'm not just saying that. Start with this one. In fact, the reality of it is, if you want to have a flourishing marriage, here you go. Seek the Beatitudes. I can't imagine a husband and wife seeking the Beatitudes together in their life, saying, God, help, help, this, help this be my character if it wouldn't have a flourishing marriage. Can you? And by the way, don't pray for her or him. Pray for yourself. You know, Chris is my wife, and I don't go, God, make her, make her like this. <laughs> life would be so much better. No, God, help me. Help me be like this. Help me. I'm responsible for me. I'm not responsible for you. I'm not responsible her. I'm responsible for me. But it's the secret to a blessed marriage. When, when people look at success in life, what, is, what did the scripture just read say? If you want success in life, what do we do? We pursue peace. We pursue peace with God. We pursue peace with God. We read this. People tell me I've read a good book lately. I said, I read a good book this morning. It's life-changing when we realize that God and the power behind it. The peace, the power, the spiritual prosperity we have when we just put ourselves in the hands of God and allow him to form the character of Christ in us. There's really only a few questions I, I just ask myself when I approach God's word. And, you know, what's my response going to be? Remember last week we looked at that. Are we, are we coming to God's word saying, God, help me learn and, and put in the practice? Or are we simply just putting in time? What's my response going to be? What's my next step? God's really good at telling us our next step. I'm not God, so I'm not going to tell you your next step. I mean, it could be joining a small group, could be going to a one-on-one discipleship or entering into a one-on-one relationship with somebody, serving them. I don't, I don't know, but God's going to tell you, and he's really good at being God. Just let him be God in your life. But really, the key question is, are you willing to take the next step? And sometimes, to be honest with you, I say to God, I want to be willing. <laughs> Would you make me willing? Help me be willing. Ever been there? Wherever you find yourself this morning, know that God meets you where you're at. And if you'll let him, he'll take that next step with you and the next step with you and the next step with you. If you've had to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that is the first step. And I encourage you this morning, before you leave here, before you turn off the computer, before you Hopewell Campus head off to lunch or whatever, uh, just, just know the first step is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But God's word for us, the Beatitudes, the foundation of all the other teaching we're going to look into. I'm so excited about where we're going as a church family. Let's pray. Father God, I just, I'm just going to be honest and pray for me right now. Lord, I want to exhibit these character traits. I don't want to just do them. I want you to form Christ in me, that I, Lord God, would allow these eight characteristics to represent me. Not because I, I, I want to be all that, but Lord God, because I just want to be walking in that right relationship with you. I want to be blessed so others can be blessed. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and just ask, Lord God, that perhaps that's their prayer too. And God, that you would just, in our church family, would you just do something that only you can do? Would you manifest the, the character of Christ in us? I was reading A.W. Tozer this week, came across a statement of his, and it was so profound. It said, the miracle of God is that he takes unholy people out of an, out of an unholy world and makes them holy in Christ and puts them back in the world and keeps them holy in the hope that other people will come to Jesus. Man, there's a ton to unpack there. But Lord, would you make that a reality for us? 
Lord, I pray for anyone who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, Lord God, that they would take that step this morning, that they'd let us help them uh, take the next and the next step with them. You've called us in a relationship with you and to each other as a church. And God, as I pray often, almost every week, Lord, uh, thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. But as we scatter, may we take your love and message to the world around us. Thank you for loving us so much, and thank you for allowing us to love others in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.